Trauma Therapist Podcast, Episode 93. Passion, dedication, and inspiration. If you're ready, are you ready to become the best version of yourself? Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support, and it is 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. No more worrying about finding the right provider or scheduling appointments. Cerebral brings it all to you whenever and wherever you need it. To get started on your path, towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving you, the Trauma Therapist Podcast listeners, 15% off your first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started by going to Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code the Trauma Therapist. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L dot com slash podcast. And don't forget to use the code the Trauma Therapist to get 15% off your first month. Make 2024 your best year yet. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Please see site for details. To hear inspiring interviews with amazing trauma therapists, this is it. Right here, right now. With your host, Guy McPherson. All right, guys, before we get going today, today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. I teamed up with Audible to bring you a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial. You can get that at westcoasttraumaproject.com slash free book. There are over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, MP3 player. Get it at westcoasttraumaproject.com slash free book. Let's get started. All right, folks, welcome back to the Trauma Therapist Podcast. My name is Guy McPherson, and today, uh, so excited to have uh, on the show here, Dr. Gabor Mate. Uh, Dr. Mate, you ready to go? Yes, thank you. All right, so Dr. Mate has over 20 years of family practice and palliative care experience. He's worked for 12 years in Vancouver's downtown east side with patients challenged by hardcore drug addiction, mental illness, and HIV. Dr. Mate is a sought-after speaker and teacher throughout North America. He's written several best-selling books, including the award-winning In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, as well as... Are you tired of spending countless hours buried under mountains of progress notes or clinical notes? It's time to focus on what truly matters, which is providing exceptional care to your clients. Introducing Text Expander, your ultimate solution to help you streamline documentation and boost your productivity. I've been using Text Expander for years, and it's one of the tools I use every single day. If you're a therapist, if you're a coach, any content or text you use on a regular basis in your progress notes, for example, your name, address, or even longer forms, paragraphs of notes, or sections of reports, you can create a shortcut for it. Text Expander automatically populates entire paragraphs of text, saving you valuable time and effort, and it allows you to get back to what truly matters, your clients. Text Expander is offering the Trauma Therapist Podcast listeners 20% off when you go to textexpander.com slash trauma. That's textexpander.com slash trauma. 
is when the body says no, the cost of hidden stress. He's also the co-founder of Compassion for Addiction, a new nonprofit that focuses on addiction. Finally, Dr. Mate has received numerous awards, among them the Hubert Evans Prize for Literary Nonfiction, an honorary law degree from the University of Northern British Columbia, and an outstanding alumnus award from Simon Fraser University. All right, Dr. Mate, obviously just a, a snippet of um, your background. Uh, share with our listeners uh, where you're calling from, for example, and uh, then let's let's dive into it. Well, I, li- I live and have worked in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And as you mentioned in the introduction, I was in family practice for many years. I worked in palliative care, looking after terminal people, and then with Vancouver's downtown east side, which is North America's most concentrated area of drug use. And uh, what unifies all of my work is what I've come to understand that whether we're talking about addiction, mental illness, or physical illnesses like cancer and uh, autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, scleroderma, colitis, Crohn's disease, chronic fatigue, we're looking in each case at the effects of childhood trauma. So as, as we kind of move in here, share with our listeners maybe a uh, kind of a guiding insight that has uh, influenced your work, maybe a mantra or a quote. I mean, you've been doing this for a while. Share with our listeners something that um, kind of has inspired you in the work that you do. I don't know if I have a ready answer for that question. What I can tell you is that uh, I've learned that the idea held by traditional Western medicine, such as I was trained in, that people are isolated, separate entities, and that diseases are unfortunate and usually unexplainable manifestations of bad luck is simply not true, that human beings are intensely connected from conception till death to other human beings and to to the universe, actually. And that we can't understand the individual without understanding his or her relationships with um, the environment in which they have grown up in and have worked in. No can understand people by separating the mind and the body. Uh, it's, it's all one unity. And only by understanding that unity can we make sense of human experience and human illness. So... Obviously, you know, again, as we talked a little bit about before we started recording here, people who are listening to this podcast are uh, therapists uh, of different disciplines. They are consumers of, of uh, treatment. And, um, you know, what I like about what you're saying, and really I think one of the things that first um, kind of inspired me when I, when I heard you speak is that, in a sense, it, it sounded as if you were also asking the question, you know, you know, what is going on here? It's, it's, it's not that there isn't so much. So there's an ideology here. There's a causative factor that maybe we're not looking at that. Maybe, um, we're what refusing to look at, speak to that a a bit, I guess. Well, it's timing that you should ask me that because I'm just writing my next book. The title of it is Toxic Culture, uh, Illness, Trauma, and Healing in a Materialistic World. And the second chapter of the book is actually on the uh, medical ideology. And we, we, we think of medicine as a, 
as a science, as a rigorous discipline, but in fact, and it has some aspects of that for sure, but it's also an ideology, and ideology is a point of view that's often unconscious, but which limits our capacity to see the world. In other words, the ideology has certain assumptions built into it that the people who are affected by the ideology don't necessarily see, but those assumptions shape and limit what they can um, see and understand. Now, the first assumption in the Western medical ideology is that you can separate mind from the body and that the causes of most medical problems are therefore strictly biological. So if it's, if it's addiction, it's a genetic biological brain problem. If it's cancer, it's a physiological problem, pure and simple. And if it's depression, it's lack of serotonin, let's increase the amount of serotonin biologically by giving out pills. So this mind separation of mind and body. And then in the second assumption in the medical ideology would be the separation of the individual from the environment. So many studies have shown, for example, that children whose parents are stressed are much more likely to have asthma. In other words, the parents' emotional states affect the lung functioning of the individual, of the child. But, but we don't see that in medicine. We just think asthma is a physical problem, isolated individual. Um, I can go on, you know. Right. So, so if we were to uh, kind of frame this from the perspective of a uh, an individual who's working with uh, you know clients who've been traumatized, a therapist, uh, say, uh, what's the take home here for them? Would you say? Well, first of all, again, we're in sync here because the next assumption that I would have listed about the medical ideology is that it's fails to deal with trauma as a key precursor to health problems later on in life. And, uh, and yet, all kinds of uh, epidemiological and scientific literature shows that early trauma, beginning actually trauma to the pregnant woman uh, while the infant is still in utero, and then, then early childhood trauma has a huge, huge impact on potentiating the risk of cancer, mental illness, addiction, and so on. So that whatever we're looking at, adult illness, we're actually dealing with the long-term impacts of trauma. And if as a culture, we're not willing or able to look at trauma, then uh, we, have a, we have a continuing uh, issue on our hands. Well, and as in a culture, we're not. Uh, and as a medical culture, we're not. I mean, the, I, I, le I lecture to medical students and uh, I speak to across North America to a lot of people. And I can tell you that to this day, trauma, except in a sense of specific and limited physical trauma, is never talked about in medical school. So most physicians never hear the perspective that, that the cancer that they're looking at or the pain that they're looking at maybe um, has a significant traumatic component in its uh, remote origins. And most physicians never hear that perspective at all. And why Why he, is that? Even though, for example, there's a Canadian study a couple of years ago that showed that if you were abused as a child, your risk of cancer goes up, your risk of cancer goes up nearly 50%. And, 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 and there's all kinds of um, physiological reasons for that. It's not just sort of a a fancy psychological connection. It's the body that's being affected mm -hmm. and right from the beginning. So why is that? Well, it's because, um, first of all, uh, 
there is the ideology of any major institution in a society will reflect the, the ideology of the society as a whole. And the dominant ideology in our culture is a materialistic one where people are valued only for what they can consume or produce. And uh, in a context like that, we don't really care about human experience that much. We just care about human functionality. And uh, trauma being on, on kind of the far end of uh, human experience continuum, right? Being something people really don't want to talk about, don't want to face, don't want to admit. Um, I know from, from my own experience that, uh, you know, still to this day, a lot of therapists um, are, for a variety of reasons, you know, don't want to look at trauma, don't want to ask about it when they're uh you know, conducting an interview, so to speak. I was interviewing a woman for the book yesterday. She's from North Dakota. She said thyroid disease. She said part of a colon removed uh, or small bowel removed because of Crohn's disease. Uh, she said diverticulitis. She was sexually molested by her stepfather from age four to fourteen. Nobody ever asked her about that. Nobody. In, 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 in all the years of medical problems, nobody ever asked her. And. Uh, Typically, when I talk to people with illness or addictions, uh, I, when I was working in addictions, in 14 years of addictions work, I did not meet a single female patient in the downtown east side of Vancouver who had not been sexually abused. And yet, most addiction physicians don't talk about trauma at all. They, they, they don't see the significance of it, and um, they're not comfortable raising the topic of it. And largely because I think that all of us are to some degree traumatized in our society. And um, some of us get into the helping professions precisely to get away from our own trauma. Yeah. And these therapists that you mentioned that won't ask about it, it's because they're not comfortable with their own pain. They haven't dealt with it. They're afraid of what it will trigger for them. And then to the, I guess and the question here then is to what degree can you be helpful? You right. Can, you can be as helpful. You can guide people along a road precisely to the point that you've come yourself. That's it. And not a, not a step further. And uh, those therapists that haven't dealt with their trauma can help the patients in a very limited or clients in a very limited fashion. Those therapists that have dealt with their trauma but are stuck in it. And I know therapists like that, too, who who've dealt with their trauma. But in other words, they've looked at it, but they're stuck in it. They still perceive themselves as victims of it. They can also only take people only so far. Because ultimately, you have to be able to go to the trauma, but you also have to be able to guide people past it. And uh, you have to have done that for yourself. If you haven't done either of those, uh, you can only take people so far. Uh, no matter how good your intentions are mm-hmm. and how committed you are. Dr. Mate, how did you get here? What got you in? to this field, into the specialization and interest? Well, um, as anybody who's read uh, my books will know, I've had my own issues. I've had my own addiction issues. I've had my own workaholism issues. I've had my own issues of repressing my feelings, which is a major risk factor for disease. Um, and uh, so partly it has to, it, it, partly it happened through me dealing with my own stuff, having to go for treatment and therapy and having to continue. And I still have to continue. Uh, 
the path of self-awareness, self-knowledge, and and uh, and curious, compassionate self-investigation. Number one. Number two. As a physician, if your eyes are open, you can't help but notice it. And once you notice it, it just shows up everywhere. So that once you recognize the connection between early childhood experience and later manifestations, physical or mental, of uh, ill health, you can't ignore it anymore. And so, uh, and then thirdly, once you open your mind to these possibilities, then there's this vast body of uh, literature that leaves it beyond any shadow of doubt that trauma is a significant factor in all manner of health conditions. <clears throat> so that whether it's my personal experience as an individual, whether it's the travails of my children where I've had to look at my own parenting and how did I pass on my trauma to them, uh, whether it's uh, what I noticed as a physician working with dying people in palliative care with cancer and so on, or whether it's my addiction work, they all uh, ended up pointing me in this direction. So, so you know, I'm really curious about the, the conviction w- with which you speak about almost uncovering um, uh, the, the, the patina of, of... As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply the issue here, the issue here being trauma. I mean, you, sp- you speak with a lot of conviction, with a lot of directness. And w- did that level of conviction and directness, um, w- were you involved with your own addictions, as you, as you call them, w- with that same level of conviction, in a sense? I mean, was it hard for you to say, to look at, to look at yourself and say, you know what, there's something going on here, um, and not just address it, but then to bring that into your professional arena. It was, it was years for me to recognize that I had addictive tendencies and just how destructive they were. And it was years after I recognized them that I, I was able to let go of them. I was in denial for a long time. And uh, this is even after I saw some things about addiction very clearly. I still had trouble seeing that. Well, yeah, buddy, you're you're part of this syndrome as well, you know. And 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 even after recognizing it, I could write about it and speak about it very articulately, but I still couldn't give it up. So, as as we kind of shift here in this interview, I'm wondering if you can share with uh, you know the listeners here an early kind of clinical error you made and and share with us what you learned from that. Obviously, you know people make a lot of mistakes. We, we as clinicians make a lot of errors. I mean, when I first, one of the reasons why I got into this field was my brother 
came back uh, from Iraq as a special forces guy with PTSD. And I was so excited to talk to him, but I just bugged him and uh, tried to really force him to, to talk about his experiences. And this was, you know, many years before I knew what was going on with uh, PTSD and so forth. Uh, and I blew it and I blew it. And that was kind of my mistake. But share with us, Dr. Mate, a story of, of uh, maybe an early clinical error you made. Well, first of all, you, you can't force anybody into this conversation. You can invite them, but you can't force them into it. Um, and there were similar cases with me when I had a certain insight all of a sudden, I wanted to push those insights onto my clients, you know, and um, people just ended up leaving me because, <laughs> you know, they don't want to come back because I wasn't compassionate. Uh, it's not compassionate to force somebody into a conversation they're not ready to have. It doesn't matter how true it is what you're saying. It's not compassionate to coerce the conversation. And of course, as a physician, I'm in a position of some degree of authority. So patients have trouble telling to my face that they're not comfortable with what I'm talking about. So it took me a while to learn that it's one thing to have the knowledge um, and the insight. It's another to communicate it in such a way that people have the option of, of not taking it on or of taking it on if they want to. And, and that, you know, did result in some people legitimately resenting me. So one of the one of the questions I, I have here is, you know, what keeps you going in this work day to day? I mean, obviously it's it, it's challenging work. You know, even bringing up the whole topic of trauma and uh, it, it's not easy. I mean, you shared a little bit about uh, you know your own history, and of course, it's, you've written about it so eloquently in your books, but. What keeps you going? I mean, you're starting a new book as well, but what keeps you going, Dr. Mate, uh, day to day? You know, I took part in a workshop a couple of weeks ago. Uh, when I say I took part in it, um, I mean, I was a participant in it um, because I need to keep doing the work myself. And um, this very question came up, and I realized that <clears throat> seeking for truth it's part of my nature. Actually, it's part of everybody's nature. And uh, whether we open to it or not. And secondly, sharing the truth is also so, so truth seeking and sharing is actually very close. To, uh, they're at the very, at my very essence, actually. Not to say I do it well all the time, not to say that I don't um, betray my own principles sometimes as a human being. Of course I do. But 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 seeking the truth, what is the actual truth of things? What's actually going on? How how do we explain? You know, like as a as a as an infant of the Nazi genocide, which I was, the the question of how do these things happen, and why are human beings capable of hurting each other and of suffering so much? That's been a central question in my life, and. Um, so seeking the truth and then sharing it as I find it is it's just, they're very close to me. And, and people want that. I mean, you know, this coming week, I'll be going to a, an Indian reservation in Canada um, where there have been dozens of overdose deaths due to addiction uh, in the last few months. 
and they, they really wanted the help. And um, just this last week in Canada, there was a big report by a government commission on the impact of the residential schools, which are forced institutions where native kids were robbed from their parents, literally kidnapped by the police uh, under the law. And the native kids were taken to for a whole hundred years, generation after generation, where they were abused physically and sexually and spiritually and in every, every way you can imagine. And the impact of that, impact of that is that although native Canadians make up three, four percent of the population, they make up 30 percent of the jail population. And uh, they have much higher rates of addiction and, and, uh, and, and disease and so on. And you couldn't have a better or I should say more tragic, clearer laboratory example of the impact of multi-generational trauma on a population. But as a physician, I know these things and I've done the research and I can articulate them in a way that actually people find liberating. When I go there next week, I know there'll be hundreds of people there and even though they've suffered these things, they still blame themselves on their addiction and their dysfunction. When they hear me speak, they'll say, well, okay, uh, it's our responsibility, but it's not our fault. And it's our responsibility how do we deal with it now, but it's not our fault that it happened. So uh, it's tremendously satisfying work that I do in helping people, under, helping people understand their experience and and also telling them that, well, it happened to you, but you're not the victim of it. You're not necessarily stuck in it. You, there's things you can do to to liberate yourself from the past. You're not defined by what happened to you in childhood. You're not defined by what happened to your grandparents. You're not just a survivor. It's, it's inspiring work. I'm, I'm constantly inspired by people, whether it's uh, the woman I spoke to yesterday from North Dakota who, with, with her own trauma, you know what she does? She helps to protect native kids from abuse. Tremendously inspiring. She, she, her suffering led her to now uh, work very hard to protect children from suffering like she did. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's really inspiring to me as well. And I think um, I remember I was in a training uh, for uh, my doctoral program a while ago and they showed a video of yours, and I, the the take home message for me was basically <laughs> wake up, you know, yeah. and and that's what I'm hearing, you know, when you say you're seeking for truth and sharing the truth, um, Doctor Mate, it, it, I want you, if you could, I want to invite you to to share some advice for you know clinicians, therapists, trauma workers who are just getting into this field. What would you say to them? May I say something before? Of course. I want to come back to your brother, if I may. If I could. Yeah, sure. Uh, but only to the degree that you're comfortable with it. Um, you wanted him to talk about his experience, right? Oh, I pushed him. I did no. everything the wrong way, yeah. No. So why do you think you did that? Why did I want to hear about his experience? Yeah. Why did you push him, do you think? 
because he wasn't talking. He was really quiet. I, you know, I he was a, he was he's a retired SEAL, so I was just excited about his adventures, and I wanted to hear it. I almost wanted to live vicariously in a sense. Okay, so look, so I, I got it. He was silent, but what was your urgency about it? My agency was... Urgency, urgency. My urgency, I think, to maybe you know communicate with him to share in his experience why did you have that urgency uh i i don't know i mean i certain i there was an urgency there was this impatience um frustration on your part there was frustration yeah what were you frustrated about i think because i wasn't we weren't communicating you You were you weren't, but what were you frustrated about? That I maybe I wasn't getting the the rush from hearing him talk, or you know, the rush from hearing him share his experiences, or what I what I imagine them those experiences might be. Okay. And you were desperate to help him, right? Well, at the time, I don't know if I was at the time. You know, this was before I really knew about. Uh, PTSD and, and psychology. I wasn't so much interested in helping him at the time. I didn't know he had he had PTSD at the time, but he certainly did, and he certainly wasn't or couldn't speak about his experiences. And something about that frustrated you? Oh, it really frustrated me. It really did. I yeah. So let me suggest to you something that this had nothing to do with. Him being a seal and any of that, it goes way. It went way back. That that this frustration that you had about not communicating. Would this have been the first time in your life that you felt that? No. Okay. How far does it go back? <laughs> uh, probably years. I don't know. It feels but, like years. I, I bet you could take it back to your childhood. Probably. In other words, you were trying to resolve something from your childhood through your brother. And uh, I, I, w- I would also say about your brother, th- th- this idea that people get PTSD because they have these wartime experiences. Well, it's not that it's not true, but it's not complete. Because when you actually look at the people who have these experiences and have PTSD, it usually triggers something for them that happened in childhood. So your brother's problems began long before he went. he became a Navy SEAL. And, uh, and, uh, so did yours, as a matter of fact, you know, in other words, what was being reenacted here was something for each of you, your childhood experience, you know, maybe your parents suffered and you felt helpless in the face of it. Maybe, maybe in your family, there was no talking. Maybe there was no sharing. Maybe that frustrated you all along. Maybe you yourself had not learned how to really share about yourself. I don't know what's going on. I don't mean to analyze your families too deeply here. But all I'm suggesting is then you're asking me what, what's the message to other people? What's the message to be? The message is that it's never about what we think it's about. <laughs> the message is that it always, it always has deep origins in our, in our beginnings. And um, that's where we need to go. And and uh, not that we go there in order to mm, 
show others or to ourselves that we're somehow victimized by it. But precisely as long as we don't work it out, as long as we don't look at it, we can't liberate ourselves from it. Yeah, well, I'm sitting here thinking that you uh, hit the nail on the head, actually. Um, yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> There's only one nail. It's not hard to hit. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. Yeah. And I think, you know, therein lies, uh, I think, a, a nugget of, of advice, certainly, for, for all of us who are doing this work. And, um, yeah. So, again, um, I think um, what I get from this experience and what I'd say to people is, I, I know you weren't a therapist at the time, you know, so you're not, you're not playing that role. You were not in that mode, but our own reactions to our clients and our own frustrations and our own judgments and emotions are our best guide to what's going on as long as we pay attention to them. So it's never about the other person. Uh, and, uh, whenever there is any kind of a, frustration or emotion on our part we have to deal with that otherwise we can't help the other person so that the only way to do this work is to continue to grow in it and to continue to allow our clients to teach us so that we can teach them actually so uh, uh, what I hear you saying is you're talking about a, a, a great self-awareness almost a raw self-awareness and the, the, you know only to the the degree that we were willing to, to do that, to move forward in that, uh, we will be able to help even begin to help or guide the people sitting in the room with us. Sometimes in my, in my lectures, I, I, uh, and I'm, and I don't do clinical work so much anymore. I, I, um, I'm too busy traveling, speaking, and then writing my next book and leading some healing retreats every once in a while. Um, but sometimes I ask, what do you call somebody who tries to resolve in another person that trauma which they haven't resolved in themselves? The answer, of course, is psychiatrist, you know, and uh, which is um, not true of all psychiatrists, but it's true for all of us that we, including myself, is that there's a great tendency to hide behind our professional roles and to think that because we've got an academic knowledge and a degree and a position and certain credentials that therefore um, we don't have to deal with what's actually going on with us as people. Mm -hmm. But really, the really great therapists are not the ones with degrees necessarily. I mean, degrees don't hurt, but in themselves, they don't guarantee anything whatsoever. There's all kinds of people with all kinds of letters after their names who are totally inept they're helping others uh, simply because they haven't dealt with their own stuff. You, you talked about, um, uh, and I don't want to simplify this, but you know, before you kind of were looking at your own issues, your own addictions. And then after that, how, how did you, did you experience a, a shift for yourself as a clinician or as a physician um, in the way that you worked with individuals? You know, there was no, um, 
it really had to do with the degree to which I dealt with my own stuff. And, and there's, so there was no sudden shift ever. Uh, there's, been a, there's been a gradual, and there continues to be a gradual, I would say, relaxation, actually. Uh, a gradual comfort um, with, um, with trauma, no matter what shape it has taken in people's lives. When I say comfort, I mean, the, the, the more I see that people can transcend it and grow past it and, 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 and incorporate it and integrate it, the less dramatic the whole thing becomes. And so there's been sort of an ongoing positive shift towards um, being able to look at anything with full faith that an individual has the capacity to grow past it and to, and to, and to fulfill themselves. As we kind of wind down here, Dr. Mate, I'm wondering if you'd be able to share with our listeners a book that's inspired you or guided you and that, you know, that could be uh, professionally related or, or not. Well, um, I hope I can mention a couple. Um, the, the, the initial ones that opened my eyes to the impact of childhood trauma were, of course, the books of Alice Miller, um, the uh, drama of the gifted child, and, and other books that she wrote. Um, more recently, uh, when I say more recently, I mean after Miller, I began to read the work of the California-based spiritual teacher and therapist, A.H. Almas, A-L-M-A-A-S. And uh, his understanding of how the personality develops um, as a protection against childhood pain and how that then manifests in emotional and spiritual dysfunction have been absolutely instructive and inspiring to me. And what was his name again? Uh, Almas, A-L-M-A-A-S. His real name is Hamid Ali, but his writer's name is Almas, A-L-M-A-A-S. He's just a seminal thinker when it comes to psychology and spirituality um the work of my friend peter levine on trauma uh peter levine wrote waking the tiger and most recently in an unspoken voice um which are great books on trauma i wrote the foreword for the last one and peter and i will be working on this book i'm writing now toxic culture together the work of bessel van der kolk k-o-l-k his most recent book is the body keeps the score great internationally renowned trauma expert. Um, the works on brain development of uh, Alan Shore and Daniel Siegel from Los Angeles. So there are many, many books I could mention. I can't <laughs> one. Um, uh, some of them are more informative than inspirational. Others are more inspirational than informative. But actually, that's not true. If it's not informative, it's not inspirational either. But all of these works, I would say, it's it's in that set of books, if you're going to talk about books, that I found much of my own um, um, orientation. Okay. So we've got uh, Alice Miller, Peter Levine, of course, Bessel van der Kolk, and the works of Alan Shore. All these will be up at the show notes page at westcoasttraumaproject.com, um, along with uh, your books and links to your website. Uh, Dr. Mate, what's the best way for people to uh, find out about you or get in contact with you? It's through the website. Okay. Uh, on the website, there are many of my YouTube lectures available, which are freely 
you know, there's no charge to see any of that stuff. Uh, chapters of my books can be downloaded, uh, interviews can be read or listened to. Um, uh, my speaking events are listed there. Okay. Uh, and my blog, every twice a year I write something over there. <laughs> I don't have time to write a blog. Um, so I, pretty much everything that anybody would want to know about me professionally is on that website. Awesome. Awesome. In addition, um, you know, we talked a little bit before we started recording here about um, uh, August 14th to be in uh, California, Berkeley, uh, through the Neurosia uh, Center at uh, the Marriott there. Again, we'll have this linked up. Uh, Dr. Mate, again, uh, it's been an honor to have you on here and to uh, share this time with you. I, I truly appreciate it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Uh, have a wonderful day. All right, sir. Take care. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 